Act and the court appreciates your willingness to accept the appointment. Of course, Your Honor. Um, my uh, my privilege. Uh, my name is John Williams. I'm here on behalf of Carl Roberts this morning. Mr. Roberts has had severe mental impairments uh, since he was 12 years old when a dump truck accident destroyed 15% of his brain. Today, I would like to focus on how two of Mr. Roberts' specific mental impairments factor into his conviction and death sentence. First, the Eighth Amendment forbids Mr. Roberts' execution under the Supreme Court's 2002 decision in Atkins versus Virginia. And second, Roberts was incompetent to be tried because his schizophrenia rendered him unable to rationally assist his counsel. The district court committed error by mechanically applying EDPA deference to these two claims without any analysis of whether EDPA applies or without whether Roberts analyzing whether Roberts satisfied its standard of review. As to the intellectual, the Atkins claim, Roberts has been diagnosed as intellectual, intellectually disabled. Reviewing this claim de novo, the court should either grant relief on the Atkins claim or remand for additional findings. And additionally, the court should vacate the conviction based on the substantial state post-conviction record showing that Roberts was incompetent, including clear errors in pretrial testing and a strong record that Roberts was suffering from psychosis at trial. Now, I'd like to begin with the intellectual disability claim and specifically the standard of review. Uh, 2254D does not apply to this claim because the claim was never adjudicated on the merits in state court proceedings. Well, wasn't it, in fact, adjudicated on the merits in state court proceedings in the pretrial proceeding? What was adjudicated on the merits in the pretrial proceeding was a state statutory claim. State uh, trial counsel brought a motion under the Arkansas state statute uh, which allowed someone to allege that they were, as it was termed at that time, mentally. But do, doesn't the Supreme Court allow the states to, to use their own laws to satisfy the requirements of Atkins? And, but, and here, I think the Arkansas Supreme Court's found that the particular statute in question that Judge Grunder referred to uh, satisfies Atkins, or is, is their method of satisfying Atkins? That's true, and that's what this court has acknowledged in Jackson as well. But the key precedent from this court that uh, establishes that this is not uh, adjudicated on the merits is Simpson versus Norris. And in that case, the court held that a state statutory claim that someone is mentally retarded is separate and distinct from a Atkins claim, an Eighth Amendment claim that was established in 2002. Counsel, is it separate and distinct for all purposes or just for procedural default? I think it is separate and distinct for all purposes. It is hard to escape the logic that they are separate and distinct for both purposes. So for procedural default, because someone did not bring a state statutory claim, they are still allowed to bring that claim in the, uh, in the federal court under the Eighth Amendment. The, the same logic applies here. If the claim did not exist in 1999, 2000, when the trial court addressed it, there is no way that the, that the state court could have adjudicated that claim on the merits. Let's look a little deeper into that question. Obviously, it's a key question here. In, in what ways are they separate and distinct for purposes of this case? Because under, even under Atkins, doesn't the court apply the state law as long as it's uh, consistent with the Atkins requirements? Well, I think they're separate and distinct legally, and I think Simpson establishes that. R regardless of whether that uh, the, the panel agrees with the reasoning of Simpson, that is the law. So they are legally distinct. I think they're factually distinct as well because the constitutional requirement for intellectual disability is that the court follow clinical standards for determining intellectual disability. And this goes to the E1 question as well. 
the the court, the trial court, did not follow any sort of clinical standards whatsoever in determining intellectual disability. To, to do that, the court would have to do a more holistic assessment of the person's intellectual functioning and not rely simply on an IQ score, which is what happened in the trial court. The court would have to well, look... Is that fair to say that it relied only on an IQ score? I mean, was it Dr. Mallory had a, a fairly lengthy examination of your client, four days as I remember, and wasn't all that evidence in front of the court at that point? It is true that Dr. Mallory had a lengthy examination that went more toward the competency question. What he did is he, is he gave him an, a WACE, which is an intellectual disability test for intellectual functioning. And he received a 76 on that test, and he testified that there was a 76, and that is what the trial court relied on. There was no further analysis of whether uh, he had adaptive, deficit, uh, adaptive deficits. There was no further analysis of whether there was other things in his intellectual functioning that would uh, show that he had significantly sub-average intellectual functioning, which is how the courts um, are required to assess that question under the Eighth Amendment. And I think Jackson and Sasser II from 2013 are quite clear on that. So the, the determination in the, in the state court was really based only on that IQ score, and that is not a constitutional intellectual disability analysis under Atkins. So on, on the D question, uh, the Simpson controls here. Uh, again, a claim that did not exist in 1999 could not have been adjudicated on the merits. The first opportunity for adjudicating that claim on the merits was when Roberts presented it in his state post-conviction petition, but the state courts did not adjudicate that claim. Rather, they simply referred back to the trial court determination, which again uh, was not an adjudication on the merits. So review under D should be de novo. Then I think we get to E1, and for the reasons that I've, uh, that I've stated, uh, those claims are factually distinct as well, and no E1 is deference is, is due to an intellectual disability determination. There are facts in the record that would have received that deference, such as that he had the 76 IQ. No one's contesting that IQ score. And I know that the state has pointed to, um, to issues regarding his adaptive functioning and stray comments that, the, uh, that Dr. Mallory made and that the state trial court made about him being able to hold a job and things of that nature. But again, that is, that is not a satisfactory intellectual disability determination under the Constitution because the determination requires the court to look at uh, deficits as well as, as strengths. There was no analysis. I mean, Dr. Mallory admitted in the, in the trial court, going back to his evaluation, that he did not do, an, that he could not do a DSM analysis of intellectual disability. Uh, the record shows that he did not do an adaptive functioning assessment. So this was not a constitutionally adequate intellectual, intellectual disability determination for the purposes of Atkins. Is this case distinguishable from the Fourth Circuit's decision in Conaway versus Polk, and if so, how? It is. Conaway, and again, what makes the difference here is the Simpson precedent. Uh, If the court were determining this in the first instance without Simpson, uh, there might be a a reason for them to determine the case, for you to determine the case as the court did in Conaway. But the, the Simpson precedent, again, establishes that the claims are separate and distinct and should be adjudicated differently, not in, as one claim, which is what the Fourth Circuit did in, uh, in Congress. You rely heavily on Simpson, though. Isn't Simpson yes. a different case in the sense that in Simpson, he wasn't even able to present his intellectual disability defense? 
That is true. I think that goes to the question of a hearing, but uh, it's also true of Roberts because, so he, well, let me start at the trial level. He could have presented a statutory claim, right? The statute existed at the time of, of Simpson's trial, right? And the difference between Simpson and Roberts is that Roberts made at least an, an initial effort to present that statutory claim, okay? I don't think Roberts should be penalized because he made that initial assessment, whereas Simpson did not. But then when it comes to the, the question of Rule 37, the court went on to determine that Simpson did not have a avenue to, break, to raise that claim in state post-conviction in, in Rule 37. That is, although Roberts attempted to present that claim in Rule 37, the state court did not adjudicate the claim. It didn't, uh, it didn't uh, give a ruling on the claim. And I think that puts, for the purposes of a potential hearing on remand, that puts uh, Mr. Roberts in the same position as Simpson. Uh, there was no full and fair hearing. Uh, because there was no uh, engagement with the intellectual disability evidence. There was simply reference back to the trial court's pre-Atkins decision. What substantive difference do you see between the statutory requirements that were adjudicated and the constitutional requirement that you want us to use now? Well, I think the, 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 the passage of time and the decision of Moore and Hall makes all the difference here. The substantive difference between what happened in 1999 and what should happen now is that the court should look more holistically at his intellectual functioning. It shouldn't rely on simply a 76 IQ. It should look at his adaptive deficits and look at how they interact with his intellectual functioning. And it should assess the intellectual, his intellectual disability in the manner that the court said it should be assessed in both Sasser and Jackson. Did the trial court really just rely on a 76 IQ? Didn't it also look at the facts and circumstances of the crime itself and his behavior after the crime, that kind of thing? I, I read the trial court's decision, which is five sentences in a verbal order and two sentences in a written order, as really relying on the 76 IQ. The, the verbal order was based primarily on competency. He said, based on the testimony of Dr. Mallory, I think the defendant is competent and capable of standing trial and to be subject to the death penalty. Subject to the death penalty is him adjudicating the, the mental retardation motion, I think. I think he can assist his attorneys in his defense, and the doctor's testimony states his evaluation is sufficient to meet the requirements of the law, and then he continues to talk more about competency. Right? And in the written motion, he says, following a hearing regarding the defendant's competency and after hearing testimony from Dr. Mallory of the Arkansas State Hospital regarding the defendant's IQ, the court hereby finds that the state may seek the death penalty at the trial of the matter. So the written order really relies on, I mean, the verbal motion does not really, order does not really say much about IQ. The written order really relies on that 76 IQ. There were some stray remarks about his functioning, um, but in terms of the offense and everything like that, I think more is clear. And Jackson is clear that the court can't simply rely on the facts of the offense uh, to determine that he had no adaptive deficits. So the, the, the proper resolution, and, and again, I want to highlight what we did show in state post-conviction, which the court did not, the state courts did not adjudicate. Dr. Garrett Andrews' opinion, he took a holistic assessment of intellectual functioning. He didn't look simply at the IQ, but he looked at his neuropsychological testing and the severe impairments that he showed in that neuropsychological testing. He looked back at his adaptive functionings, functioning, looked back at his school records, looked back 
had statements from his family, uh, found that he uh, had limitations and needed supports in terms of uh, his practical domain, his ability to go about the activities of daily living, his conceptual domain, academics, and that sort of thing, and found that he was intellectually disabled. So that, although we think that conclusion is um, is sufficient for relief, we also uh, think that it's certainly enough to go back for a hearing um, if the court has any questions about his intellectual disability under uh, Simpson and Sasser. I'd like to, to move briefly to the, the, um, the competency issue, unless there are more questions on intellectual disability and Atkins. So on, on competency, epidefference does apply to this claim. We don't dispute that. Um, but the district court erred by rubber stamping the district court's, excuse me, the state court's opinion. This is a, a rare case where the uh, petitioner can show a unreasonable determination of facts based upon the state court record. Um, when faced with unrebutted evidence on his competency, the state court uh, simply referred back to the pretrial competency decision, didn't engage the new evidence, and that was unreasonable. And when we actually look at the facts, I think there's a clear uh, record that he was incompetent uh, to be tried. And there are five things I would like to highlight very briefly to establish that. First, his schizophrenia. There is overwhelming evidence that he was schizophrenic, uh, that he is schizophrenic. No one debates that. I think the dispute has been the timing of so his schizophrenia. when was that diagnosis made? So he was first diagnosed in 2011 by Dr. Fuji. Okay? And that carried out the hearing. There was so a hearing. Was 12 years after the trial. That was 12 years after the trial. And there is uh, robust evidence from both Dr. Peacock and Dr. Fuji that schizophrenia is not a condition that simply develops late in life. He had schizophrenia when he was in his in his teens and at the time of this offense. Uh, that is just the way that the, that the diagnosis works. But he works. was evaluated by several doctors, none of which reached that conclusion, right? That's, that's true, and there were some reasons for that. One, uh, Dr. Malley threw out his test, uh, which had the, uh, psycho the, the, the psychosis scales uh, for bad reasons, and Dr. Fuji talked about that in the hearing. Um, and the, um, Dr., Dr. Weatherby, who was the trial... <laughs> The, uh, the state, excuse me, the uh, Roberts expert at trial uh, found that he, that schizophrenia is suggested. She saw that he had psych psychotic symptoms. Uh, she didn't get all the way to the diagnosis, primarily for reasons we state in our intellectual disability, or excuse me, our ineffective assistance of counsel claim, which is that she wasn't given sufficient information. But he is schizophrenic, and that condition is of longstanding. There's evidence about how those psychoses worked um, before the trial. His, uh, his scene people, his auditory hallucinations, his outbursts, these are all symptoms of his mental conditions. So I think the question is not so much whether he was schizophrenic at trial, but the question is whether he w that schizophrenia was affecting his ability to assist his counsel. And there is uh, ample evidence in the record that he was psychotic at trial. And I think the primary evidence is this hearing before the trial about someone recording him in his cell. Uh, I know this was sort of taken at face value in the trial court record that someone might have been recording him in his cell, but th this, is, this is clearly an instance of him having auditory hallucinations, and the trial court found, of course, no one is recording him in his cell. No one is sending him messages in his cell, but he was hearing things in his cell, and that was sussed out of the hearing two weeks before trial. You also have his trial counsel basically telling us at the Rule 37 hearing that there is uh, there was no way for us to really get anything out of him. He wasn't cooperating with us. And that goes directly to the assistance prong of competency. And I think particularly important 
is the misscoring of the competency instruments. Dr. Fuji talked about this at the Rule 37 hearing. Both the Georgia competency test, which Dr. Mallory administered, and the test that Dr. Weatherby administered going to your question were misscored. In fact, Dr. Weatherby's test showed that he should not have passed her competency instrument. So uh, that is based upon contemporaneous records and Dr. Fuji's expert opinion. After looking at all those records, Dr. Fuji uh, opined that he was incompetent to be tried, and no one at the Rule 37 hearing rebutted that. Uh, I've ended my rebuttal time. Um, I could take further questions if there are, or I can come back in at the end. Okay. Very well. Good morning, Mr. Lupke. Thank you. May I proceed? Please. Uh, may it please the court, on May 15, 1999, Carl Roberts drove his 12-year-old niece, Andy Brewer, out into the woods of Polk County, Arkansas, and raped and murdered her. Uh, for these acts, he was convicted of capital murder and sentenced to death. Uh, since the time of the murder, for 24 years now, twice as many years as Andy had on this earth, attorneys acting on behalf of Roberts have continually litigated issues related to his intellectual abilities and competence. Um, Mr. Williams was talking about two of those issues today, and those issues were decided by the state court. Accordingly, this court should affirm the district court's decision to apply the deferential standards of the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, EDPA, and affirm the denial of habeas relief. I'll start with the intellectual disability. <clears throat> the district court denied that uh, applying both deference under 2254D and the presumption of correctness under 2254E1. Uh, either one of those statutes is sufficient uh, to defeat Carl Roberts' claim here, uh, but he applied both of them, and I think they were both correctly applied. I'll start with E1. Uh, E1 gives a presumption of correctness to any factual findings that must be overcome by clear and convincing evidence. Uh, as some of the judges... Let's nope. maybe let's maybe deal with the preliminary question that was discussed quite a bit in, in okay. the other argument, is whether there was an adjudication. Um, I think Mr. Williams argues that the there was an adjudication of a state statute um, versus what should be considered an adjudication would have to be a constitutional standard. What's your response to that? I, there was an adjudication of the state statute, which the Arkansas Supreme Court has said, and this court has said, is the same as the Eighth Amendment claim. Uh, in 1999, he raised that state statutory claim. Uh, the elements of that claim, I think it's important to look at that, are that he has to prove sub-average intellectual functioning, adaptive def deficits in adaptive behavior, and, and that there was an onset prior to the age of 18, the same elements that there would be in an Atkins claim. Uh, when the hearing was had on that claim, Robert's counsel announced that he was going to rely on the testimony of Dr. Mallory for that claim, and Dr. Mallory specifically spoke to intellectual functioning and whether or not, ha whether or not Robert's had any adaptive behaviors. Uh, that claim was fully adjudicated, and then it was reviewed through the mandatory review. Uh, we know that for a fact because the Arkansas Supreme Court said as much in 2020, and it's later Rule 37 opinion, it said we did adjudicate that claim, and the adjudication of that claim is the same 
uh, as an adjudication of the Atkins, as the Fourth Circuit found in the Conway versus Polk case. Uh, I think counsel uh, maintains that there was no testimony from anyone competent to make the uh, adaptive deficit uh, analysis. What's your yeah, response to that? I think that is a misstatement of the record. I, I don't think that's a fair reading of Dr. Mallory's testimony. I want to highlight specifically, um, Dr. Mallory testified, and this is at uh, page 667 of the, that's the trial court page of the trial court record, or it's in the appendix at E73. Uh, to get any kind of mental diagnosis, you have to have a major impairment of some life activity. And I could not determine that, meaning I couldn't find that. If you have low IQs plus a major impairment, then you could call it mental retardation, or as we would call it today, intellectual disability. Uh, a couple pages later, he says, the intellectual handicap, is referring to his low IQ score, did not prevent any major life activity. He then goes to talk on, goes on to talk about Roberts holding down a job for six years, a semi-skilled job as a concrete finisher. He talks about Roberts being married, having children, Roberts scoring high on a reading test. Those go to the practical, the social, and the academic domain. He's looking at those areas of the DSM and saying, I interviewed Roberts, I interview and he went further. He interviewed the family members. His report says, you'll see that, he interviewed the family members. And he simply didn't find any evidence of, adapt of any adaptive deficits. That's what his testimony is. And when the trial court says, I'm relying on that testimony and I find that he's not, that he's, that he is not ineligible for the death penalty, that he is eligible for the death penalty. That is a finding under those statutory factors. That's accepting Dr. Mallory's testimony as to those factors. And that's an adjudication um, of, an, of an Atkins claim, uh, of an intellectual disability claim. And that, so that's where you get a factual finding from the trial court that's entitled to a presumption of correctness under E1. And then when that's later affirmed uh, by the Arkansas Supreme Court on its mandatory review as it told uh, so that it did in 2020, that's where you get an adjudication that can be given deference under D2. Um, he uh, Counsel, Mr. Williams, talked a lot about Simpson and Sasser, and they talk about these claims being separate and distinct. Uh, and Your Honor asked a question about, isn't that really in the context of procedural default? And I believe that's the correct way to view it. Uh, while the state doesn't believe that Simpson and Sasser were correctly decided, it is very clear that they're not dispositive in this case. They do not control. Um, the idea being that you cannot divorce Simpson from the context that it was heard in, procedural default. Simpson did not raise the statutory claim that was available to him, but Atkins hadn't been decided. And so the court said, you know, in fairness, because you were not aware that by not raising that statutory claim, you were giving up a later Eighth Amendment claim, then you haven't procedurally defaulted that claim. While procedural default and adjudication are similar concepts, they're not two sides of a coin. They're not mirror images of each other. If you fully litigate a state factual, a state claim that subsumes the federal standard, there's case law that says that, if you fully litigate a state claim where the, all of the factors are the same, uh, say Johnson v. Williams from the United States Supreme Court, if the state law claim subsumes the federal standard, then the federal claim may be regarded as adjudicated on the merits. The whole point of EDPA is that if you got your chance to litigate your claim once, you don't get a chance to do it again. We just review whether or not 
it was appropriately litigated and correctly litigated. And he can't overcome the 2254D or 2254E1 bars here. Um, to say that he, that these, to apply Simpson and say that they're separate and distinct, even though they, we later say in Sasser that they're the exact same claims, you litigate the statute, you're litigating the Atkins claim, and Atkins itself cites the Arkansas statute as part of the growing trend towards uh, allowing the recognition of this Eighth Amendment right, and then leaves it up to the states, and the state says, our statute is how we apply Atkins, and no federal court has ever said that that's incorrect. It would be giving Roberts a windfall, a second chance that EDPA just sim simply does not allow. Um, Roberts writes in his own brief when talking about EDPA that a state court decision uh, is only unreasonable if the court's presumptively correct factual, factual findings do not find support in the record, any support at all. Here we have not only the testimony of Dr. Mallory, uh, Roberts' own expert at trial, Dr. Weatherby, said, did, uh, looked at that and found that he was not intellectually disabled either. She found him to be borderline, and her dispute with Dr. Mallory's testimony, uh, and this is in her, I would point the court to her testimony in the record. She said that her dispute with him is that he didn't give a borderline intellectual functioning diagnosis because there was no need for deficits to find a borderline intellectual uh, finding. And that's in the at appendix G341. And so both of these experts considered whether there were any deficits. Both of them had interviewed Roberts and his family members and found that there weren't any deficits. So the claim was adjudicated by the Arkansas Supreme Court, so you can apply 2254D. And at that point, under Colin V. Pinholster, the only opinions you're looking at are Weatherby and Mallory, and neither one of them finds that he's intellectually disabled. And based on those opinions, uh, Roberts' counsel made a point to ask the, the jury to find that he was borderline intellectual functioning in, in mitigation, and that's something that they did find. And so. We have a full adjudication under federal standards of whether or not he was intellectually disabled, and this court should defer to that. Uh, but re regardless of whether the court wants to, to apply 2254D, I would pull back. I think it's very clear that 2254E1 applies because the state court, and this court has said that E1 applies to trial court findings as well as appellate court findings. I think. The district court talked about some language in the appellate court opinion, and, and that's fine that they could rely on that as well. But I think it's really clear that the trial court, when it made its ruling, I rely on Dr. Mallory and I find he can be, he is eligible for the death penalty, made a finding of that he's not intellectually disabled. And uh, Roberts would have to rebut that by clear and convincing evidence. And all we really have is a battle of the experts, his expert, and the other experts who found him to not be intellectually disabled. I think if you go through the records, there are four psychologists or neuropsychologists who opine on Robert's whether or not Roberts is intellectually disabled. Uh, Dr. Mallory Weatherby, Dr. Peacock, who reviewed a court's, like Dr. Mallory was a court's expert who revealed him, reviewed him at the Rule 37, did a intellectual testing and found he wasn't intellectually disabled. And then Dr. Andrews. Three of those four experts 
talked to Roberts. Two of them talked to Roberts' family member. The only ones that, that didn't and simply reviewed records is Dr. Garrett Andrews. And so I would say one of these things is not like the others. And you have three experts. He's not presenting clear and convincing evidence to rebut that state court finding. But regardless of that, if you found under 2254D, you don't even consider Garrett Andrews' testimony. I would turn uh, briefly to competence to stand trial. Uh, once again, this was an issue that was decided, uh, fully litigated and decided in Arkansas State Court. And the district court correctly applied uh, deference under 2254D and 2254E1. Um, Roberts admits in his brief on page 62 that the Arkansas Supreme Court uh, articulated the correct legal standards. And so it goes down to whether or not this is, uh, a, in light of the facts, a correct adjudication uh, by the Arkansas Supreme Court's latest adjudication, the Rule 37 opinion in 2020. Um, and I think, again... Was, was proper consideration given to the fact that he was apparently... Uh, Imagining things at the time of trial about people recording him? I, the Arkansas Supreme Court, when it released its latest decision, said it looked at, doctor, at the later testimony from the Rule 37 and the earlier testimony and said that it found that the earlier testimony stood and he was competent to stand trial. I think... Mr. Williams would want the court to write more, but the, Arkansas, or the United States Supreme Court has said repeatedly that it does not set opinion writing standards for state courts. State courts can discuss claims as little or as much as they want to. The, the fact is that they uh, mentioned the evidence and then decided the claim. That's sufficient here for the deference. What about the... Um testimony of the four lawyers at trial, did any of the reviewing courts address that? And, and I think the Supreme Court has said, you know, we, we take particular interest in what counsel says about their interactions with the defendant. Here, I think there's some record that indicates they had a hard time communicating with him. I don't remember. I don't think the district court addressed that. I don't think the Arkansas Supreme Court addressed that. I don't know that they specifically address that, I mean, they do a holistic review of the record in all death and life cases, and they review all the evidence, and they said they didn't found that there wasn't any clear error. That testimony was before them, so they clearly considered it. I would also point out there's a difference between being able and being willing to assist counsel. Uh, and Dr. Weatherby, who assisted, uh, found him capable of assisting counsel and competent, uh, noted that you know, she found him competent, and she interviewed him So, and took evidence as to his discussion of voices and delusions. So he was assisting in his defense and certainly in talking to Dr. Weatherby and talking to Dr. Mallory. Uh, it was the defense that sent him down there to the state hospital to be evaluated by a courts expert, by Dr. Mallory, and he cooperated with that. And I would point out that... Uh, your Honor mentioned a little bit ago this hearing where he was hearing voices. I think it's speculative uh, to say that that's evidence of the psychosis. I think if you read the testimony of that hearing, he's in a jail cell that's across the hall from a radio room. He's hearing it through a wall. He never says that he hears his voice or his name. 
Whether or not those are people actually talking or psychosis, I think it would be pure speculation. I think that's Dr. Fuji back projecting. But the other reason I want to highlight that incident is they take issue with whether or not he was able to assist his counsel. The one thing that hearing demonstrates clearly to this court, and this court can have no doubts about after that, is he was assisting in his own defense. He had a concern about something that happened in jail, and he brought it to his lawyers, and they litigated it before the court. That's evidence that he can assist in his own defense. That's what we want a trial court, or that's what we want a defendant to do, to be able to bring up issues to his counsel and have them presented to the court. That's what competence is, and that's what he did. Uh, and then finally, uh, Mr. Williams was uh, talking a little bit about the, the misscored tests. Uh, one thing he did, he was a, a, a little, he didn't bring out is that Dr. Fuji in his testimony didn't actually say, he never says that even under my view of the Georgia competency test, Roberts fails. And in fact, at one point in his testimony, and uh, this is at the appendix at S416, he noted that according, under his scoring, according to the criteria, his rescoring, a person would be fit. So even he believed that he passed the Georgia competency test. He talks about questions that he would have scored differently, talks about some questions that are blank, but he never says that Roberts didn't pass the Georgia court competency test. And I think the other reason that the Arkansas Supreme Court was correct to look at the earlier experts who found him to be competent, as opposed to Dr. Fuji, is because the question is, what if any psychosis did he have that, at that time, and was it affecting it at the time? They're the only experts that interviewed him at that time. Uh, Dr. Fuji interviews him 11 years later, uh, well, 12 years after the crime, 11 years after the trial, which took place in the year 2000, and finds that, and then he looks at certain anecdotes and back projects. But the other two experts sat with Roberts for multiple hours. Uh, the state hospital reviewed him from, uh, had him under observation for multiple days, and they found that he was competent. And so to, you know, again, I would say, Roberts put this in his own brief, a state court decision is based on a reasonable termination of the facts only if the court's presumptively correct factual findings do not support do not find support in the record. Here there is support for the court's finding that he's competent to stand trial. And so under, under AEDPA, this court has to defer to that and should affirm that's what the district court did. Uh, I have a couple minutes remaining, unless the court has any other questions. I Mr. Lutke, I, I do have one. Yes, Your um, Honor. And, and this it was confusing to me, so maybe you can clear it up. My understanding is the Arkansas Supreme Court subsequently determined that he was uh, not competent to waive his post-conviction proceedings. Yes, that's correct. And was there a finding with respect to his competency to waive um, direct appeal? Yes, that happened in the very first, in the, in the direct review opinion. Uh, there is a discussion of his competency to waive uh, and they talk about how the court considered... Didn't those two things happened at the same time, right? Waiving of his post-conviction and waiving of his direct appeal. No, they did not. Uh, at the time when he waived his direct appeal, and 
waiver in a sense that there, he was still given a direct review and the court reviewed all errors to see, or all objections to see if any were prejudicial to him. So whether or not there really was a waiver is, is kind of uh, disputed there. I would oh, say I, I see. What you're saying is he, he got review anyway. He got review anyway. I see. Uh, but in answer to your original question, Your Honor, and I apologize for getting off the point, uh, while they do talk about Rule 37 and habeas at the time that he makes his waiver right after trial, that is not the waiver that the Arkansas Supreme Court later says is not that he wasn't competent to give. After direct review happens, he comes back and has a hearing without a lawyer multiple years after. And kind of what the Arkansas Supreme Court says in its first opinion on that is, it's been a long time, you need to review his competence again. And then they go back, and that's where Dr. Peacock and Dr. Fuji come in and review his competence again. And they found he was, the trial court found he was competent to waive, but the court reversed, and that's where they said he wasn't competent to waive. So the original one was just as to the direct appeal, even though they discussed the other. It's the later one that they had concerns with years later, after he'd spent years. I'm out of time. I would ask the court to affirm uh, the district court's denial of habeas relief. Thank you. Very well. Thank you. Mr. Williams, rebuttal. Thank you. I would uh, return uh, briefly to the, to the Simpson issue. Um, Simpson and Roberts are in, although factually different positions, the exact same position as a matter of substance. Uh, Mr. Lubke uh, says that it would give Roberts a windfall uh, to be able to have de novo review on this. Well, I'm not sure how well she'd characterize what Simpson got when he could have brought his state statutory claim, and then he was able to go and then litigate his uh, federal constitutional claim. So I think Roberts is entitled to the same sort of relief. The court could not have adjudicated on the merits a separate and distinct constitutional claim that did not exist in 1999. Uh, and that also answers the, um, Mr. Lobke's point about Johnson versus Williams. Uh, you know, I understand that uh, aspect of habeas law that often a uh, state uh, adjudication is meant to subsume a federal adjudication, but that assumes that the federal right exists at the time of the state adjudication. Again, Simpson answers this, this question. There, is, uh, there could be no adjudication of a claim, of a federal constitutional claim in 1999 that didn't exist. Uh, on the factual issue, E1. Again, I think, I think D1 is, D is straightforward under Simpson. D does not apply. E1 may be a little bit more difficult, and I think we're talking a lot about what the court did and didn't do in the, um, in, at the trial uh, era. Uh, I do want to point out that at the same part of the record that Mr. Uh, Lukey cited on the decision about um, mental retardation in 1999, uh, Dr. Mallory said, I can't do it as a DSM system. That's what he said, and I read that as him saying that he cannot assess for adaptive deficits. Um, when Dr. Uh, Andrews looked at that, he didn't see that as, a, as an assessment of adaptive deficits. Our position is the only assessment of adaptive deficits is in the uh, state post-conviction record. Uh, E1 uh, is also a rebuttable presumption. Um, you know, it's a presumption that we can rebut. We, would, uh, we assert that we have rebutted that presumption in the state post-conviction, but a hearing is also available in federal court to, to rebut that presumption. And at the very least, we think Mr. Roberts is entitled to further proceedings and a hearing on that. The, uh, the state has not argued at any point that we are not entitled to a hearing. Uh, E2 does not forbid that hearing because Mr. Roberts was diligent in state post-conviction at presenting his state court record. 
And I think, this, the, again, the Simpson, the Simpson and Sasser logic suggests that uh, the hearing should occur if there are any questions about intellectual disability uh, because uh, there was no full and fair hearing in the state post-conviction proceeding when Mr. Roberts was first able to present his federal constitutional claim. One point of rebuttal on the competency issue. Uh, what Dr. Fuji did say about the Georgia competency test, and the record is perhaps uh, not, as, not as clear as it was on Dr. Weatherby's test, where Dr. Fuji said he scored below the competency, the competency um, threshold on that test. Um, but what Dr. Fuji did say is that competency is a, um, a, an issue you cannot just rely on a test to determine. And I think the trial court did put a large uh, amount of weight on that Georgia competency test and citation of Dr. Mallory's testimony. Dr. Fuji looked more holistically at his competency um, when he saw the, uh, the errors in the Georgia competency test as well as the fuller record of his psychoses. He determined that he was incompetent to be tried. And that was not rebutted in the Rule 37 record. Um, so if there are no further questions, my time has expired. Very well. Thank you. Thank you. Court would like to thank both counsel for your appearance and argument. It was a very good argument, and I think it will be helpful to us. You may um, be excused. And Ms. Rudolph, would you announce our second?